out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, keyboard player, composer, and much, much more. It is the one and only David Formula, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, and poetry, and lots of other groovy stuff. Came from Manchester, as if that's interesting, but was in uh, magazine Visage and has been in lots of other musical projects over the years, as well as a prolific solo career. But you'll find out more about that during this interesting interview. So look, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that gets edited out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, the musical awakening. Anyway, Dave... It's over to you. Well, different ones, uh, because I've got reasonably broad uh, likes within music. Uh, so I suppose uh, the first one, although it, I was, I suppose, how old was I? Ten? Uh, was, you know, hearing the first Elvis record. Right. Um, and then from there... Uh, didn't lose interest. I never got a huge interest, but Jailhouse Rock, sorry, um, Heartbreak Hotel had had a, a kind of a long time sleeper kind of effect on me. Uh, as as I got older, I realised how how good it was and how well recorded it was, and you know how important it was. Uh, but it, when I first heard it. It did something, but I, I didn't. I didn't fully register. I was too young at ten. Um, and then from that, the sort of stuff you were hearing in the late fifties and early sixties was was pretty poor. It was mainly British covers of rock and roll records, uh, which were pretty awful. Yes. Um, so I kind of lost interest. Uh, and uh, my dad was a, a piano player semi-pro, uh, but, you know, I kind of came face-to-face with aspects of the musical world. Um, and I got interested in jazz uh, from the age of about 14, I suppose. And I, 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 met, I met this guy who uh, we became good friends, school friends. And we ended up going to see Duke Ellington and Count Basie at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. Right. And that was mass- a massive effect to see two bands of that kind of level of, you know, amazing musicianship uh, and excitement. Uh, yes. So, yeah, and then after that, it kind of, the Beatles, the whole Merseyside Beatlemania thing happened, the Rolling Stones happened, and that was that was massive. Uh, so maybe a picture starting to emerge, a, a huge amount of, different things happened yes. because I was lucky, lucky enough to be born early enough to see all those changes and, yes. and throughout, throughout. Yes, amazing. Did you also, with that that world of jazz, did you also get into beat, beat bop and, and people like Charlie That came Pine? later. Right. That, sorry to interrupt, that, that came later. Um, in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine about it quite recently. Uh, when we first started to go into Manchester, from the age of 16, you know, we, we were allowed freedom from our parents 
we used to go in, uh, there was this crossover in Manchester of the beatnik uh, clubs and coffee bars uh, into the more uh, groups, bands started to appear at the Twisted Wheel and the Oasis Club. Mm. Um, and uh, sorry, I forgot what, what you asked me. What was the question? So, so it was like, you know, you're talking about jazz and I just, because often... Oh, that... sorry, yeah, yeah, that's... Sorry, apologies. Yeah, I, I got onto the, the, the Twisted Wheel. What it was, we one of the nights we went into town that we weren't going to the Twisted Wheel, we just were wandering into this pub in the centre of Manchester. Uh, and I was just kind of, my ears were just pinned back. There, there was a bop piano player playing with a trio uh, in this in this you know pub in the centre of Manchester. I can't remember the name of the pub. It was the back of the Manchester Evening News uh, offices. And I'd just never heard a bebop pianist before. And to, to be almost stood next to him, you know, in, in a, a steamy beer beer drinking place was that was the next kind of ear opener for me. I just couldn't I couldn't understand because I was you know started as a piano player how he was doing what he was doing on the piano. It just his phrasing and the speed of his improvisations was because Ellington and Basie as piano players were much more considered players um, because I, I guess they, they came initially from an earlier stride piano era. Uh, <clears throat> but so to hear a piano player that had been influenced by Parker and Coltrane was like, wow, uh, amazing. How is he doing that? And, you know, from that point on, uh, that's when I, I got to answer your question, got interested in bebop and Miles Davis and, you know, all the kind of generational changes in the 60s uh, yes. with, with jazz. And what about people like Fats Domino and Ray Char Charles? Did they come into your consciousness at that stage as well? Ray Charles particularly, uh, although I like Fats Domino, I hadn't made in my brain, I hadn't made the, the New Orleans connection with Domino, uh, but I loved his, his style of playing. Uh, and, yeah, I... I, I was while I was still at school, you know, I was really affected by songs like Hit the Road Jack uh, by Ray Charles and uh, uh, his first record. Come on, Dave. Um, <laughs> not only was it his, his first hit record, but it was the first record to have an electric piano on. Uh, he played a, an early Wurlitzer through electric piano. Yes, because you're roughly the same age as what Lemmy and David Bowie, you know, the same, roughly the same year. And when they were ever asked, you know, about their musical moment, it was Little Richard, you know, hearing Little Richard and obviously sure. his flamboyance and his style. And I think David Bowie even got to see him with his friend George Underwood and were like amazed and he sent away for a, a photograph, signed photograph of Little Richard. Did that kind of spectacular flamboyance kind of appeal to you at that stage yeah yeah absolutely i i i i, I was too young to realize he was gay uh a great documentary have you seen it that's just been on bbc about little richard no but i know there's a it's, film coming out isn't there yes yes yeah, on the high player have a look at it it's uh little richard the king and queen of rock and roll right uh, it's it's brilliant. It's very very good. Um, yes, I I just love the band. 
and his voice was was a revelation. And then to McCartney, you know, uh, do a, a pastiche. Well, not he did a very good, you know, pastiche of Little Richard on on a couple of records. Yes. Um, yeah, Little Richard, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it seemed that it seemed that Elvis very quickly, you know, left his you know groundbreaking white rock and roll R and B. Uh, went into you know schmaltzy pop records, and yet there was people like Little Richard were still, you know, carrying the torch for raunchy R and B rock and roll, which was great. Yes, and obviously Jerry Lee Lewis as well, which was um, yes quite an interesting character. Did you also get into the literature at the time? You know, like people like Jack Kerouac and On the Road and um, Allen Ginsberg. Did you sort of also aspire to be a beatnik at this stage of your jazz jazz odyssey? No, no, no. I was too immature, I think, to to take that on. I read, you know, I read Kerouac uh, and Ginsberg later. Uh, Probably in the early seventies, something like that. Right. A, a friend, a guy who became a friend, and really sort of encouraged me to. What you mean? You haven't read that? What's the matter with you? You know, get it read. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. This is all very true. But then you, 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 in your was it the first band you were in the R and B band called St Louis Union? Was this your first kind of proper That's band? Not... Absolutely, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, this was the guy. Uh, I first started to go into into Manchester Town Centre with the singer Tony Cassidy, uh, and you know, from very early days of meeting up, uh, we we knew we wanted to form a band. Uh, we got into blues and R and B, you know, uh, race music as it was known in America, uh, quite early on. And it took us about two years, I suppose. Uh, combination of of, of the whole revolution within within British pop music and the American uh, import imports of, of R&B and blues you know those two main uh, the two main elements that inspired us to want to be in a band as it did many other British musicians would be musicians in, in yeah. that, at that time and you would have been at that perfect age to navigate the interest of the 60s from that kind of 63 period, the Beatles and the Stones, through to 67 with the Summer of Love and the, you know, exactly. there, was, the, there was the the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at the Ali Pali and in San Francisco there was a the gathering of the tribes and obviously you would have suddenly had moments with the the Jimi Hendrix first album and the Doors and people like that. Did you also embrace that kind of psychedelic kind of counterculture? Absolutely. Hendrix, particularly, yeah, big, big Hendrix fan at the time. Um, yes, and were you and were you so, interested in people like Steve Winwood as well at that point? Well, I used to see the Spencer Davis group at the Twisted Wheel, uh, you know, for for next to nothing, uh, and they were regular regular visitors to the Wheel along with many other great bands, the Animals and British bands, Manfred Mann, John Mayall. Plus, lots of American, you know, Johnny Hooker, uh, Muddy Waters, all, all sorts of people came. There was never almost a week that went by from 1963 to 67 when there wasn't something amazing happening yes. uh, in music or in, in, in the charts. And, uh, so, yeah, it was. I'm so 
grateful for the time I was born, really, to have seen and heard all I did, sort of, you yeah. know, as it happened. Yes, as it as it was kind of happening. I know you you sort of straddled several musical zeitgeists, which was quite interesting, wasn't it? But you recorded one single. Did you just record the one Beatles cover, "Girl" for the band? No, no, we followed that up with a a, a song by Graham Goulman, you know, the, the writer from Tennessee. So he, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, he a song by him called Behind. Been rejected by a few of the bigger bands, and uh, we were persuaded. We were the same agent as as Graham, and we were persuaded to do that. And right, that, that didn't do anything really. Yes. And then we, the last single we recorded uh, with Deco was a song called East Side Story, uh, which ironically has has become. Uh, it maybe had its time two or three years ago in America. When it became part of the freak beat movement and was was quite big in lots of uh, clubs in, across America, there was this whole movement. I think it was more of an American than British called freak beat, freak beat, um, and that record got picked up as a, a prime example of this uh, uh, genre. Yes, that's so amazing. So it had a second life decades later. Yes, um, maybe. Yeah, two years later. That's amazing. It, it, it was kind of, you know, the Beatles cover and the Graham Gorman song were completely against type for the St. Louis Union. We should never really have recorded those and released those songs. Yes. Uh, because that, that was so different from the music we were playing. Yes, I know. That's always a bit of a number, isn't it? In hindsight. Yeah, yeah. So in 67, the band breaks up. Was that, you You were obviously a, a live act, but not really prolific in the studio. Was that kind of inevitable that the band was had had its day? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, for it to happen so early, you know, because the singer was, uh, Tony was 18 months, maybe younger than me. So he was barely 17. You know, when, when we had a hit record, you know, I was 18 and a half, coming on to 19. So, it, it, you know, there was all this suddenly you're putting on top of the pops, thank you, Lucky Stars, lots of other British television shows, constantly touring. Uh, and when the second record didn't do anything, you know, I, th I think it was massively disillusioned. Disillusioned, I can't say it. It was a disappointment. It was a, yes, a, a massive disappointment. Yes. Did and you it kind of gradually just fell apart, really? No, it, these things don't do happen. So as the sort of 60s were trucking on then, sort of only in a couple of years later after you break up, you know, we then have the end of the decade and the death of Hendrix, Morrison and Joplin and Brian Jones the year before. What was it like for you sort of? still being relatively young, sort of realising that that kind of golden period of music came to a bit of a, a messy finish, really, didn't it? Because nothing like that's ever happened since. Sure. Uh, well, it all seemed to tie in. It took took me... Uh, I, I find it very hard, uh, the St. Louis Union, Union breaking up, because we'd put so much into it physically and mentally and for it suddenly not to be there anymore... I find it quite devastating. Um, so the, the the music scene fizzling out to the extent it did, as you just said, was just seemed to be part and parcel of a 
you know, a, a kind of grand disappointment, really. And what do I do now in my yes. in a selfish kind of way? Yes. And also because a lot of people, because quite a lot of people... Are... I, 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 I didn't want to... Sorry, David, you're cutting out quite badly. Yes, I, I sort of, it just cut out there. Yeah, I just wondered what it was like when you, you know, that that kind of scene finished and with the 60s, quite a few people I've interviewed from that sort of period. And I sort of, they slightly disappeared in the 70s or completely disappeared. And, and quite a few just said we were just completely burnt out after that five-year period of kind of just like being on the scene, taking a bit of a break, and then suddenly you realise another wave of 16, 18-year-olds come along. And you kind of can't relate to them, even though there's only a few years difference. But, you know, suddenly sure. we have glam rock and we have a completely different sort of soundtrack going on. And and it's like there's another party. So I just wondered what it was like for you, you know, in that kind of transition period of the early 70s. Uh, well... What I did, uh, I still wanted to be involved with music, but I was cast adrift in a sense. And the only way I, I found to stay in music was was just playing in, in sort of cabaret clubs around the Manchester area. Just, just it was good for my uh, ability as a, as a broadening my musical abilities on a technique and sight reading level because. My side reading was very dodgy yes. prior to that. I became a better musician, but it, it was it was music that I, you know, it was playing you know playing in clubs, playing for you know uh, visiting cabaret acts, which was kind of soul destroying in a way. Um, and now, ironically, I got got involved with the agent that had been the agent for the St. Louis Union, uh, and 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 said to me. You know, if you put a band together, we can offer you, uh, you know, regular work touring with these different people. Um, and it, uh, initially it was, you know, people that have faded from that first uh, 60s generation, British pop stars like Wayne Fontana. Uh, we were playing clubs with him. Uh, and that was okay. You know, they were, they could, they, you know, they were reasonably good musicians. I mean, had, they'd had hit, they'd had their time, but it was a bit sad. And then, then an offer came in to tour with Jimmy Ruffin, uh, Motown's Jimmy Ruffin, right. which was a bit more, a bit more like it because he was very dynamic, uh, and we learned a lot from him about dynamics, about stagecraft, how to work an audience, you know, stuff that we just got away with with the Central Union Pure and the fact that we had a, we only had to walk. He had a hit record in those days. He just had to walk on the stage and everyone was screaming. You know, he just had to do the songs. But I learned a lot about the way you structure a show, the way you present yourself working with Jimmy Ruffin because he, he had that American Motown background, which probably involved a lot of kind of schooling that he'd had as a young man with yeah. Motown. So, so there's a hell of a lot to learn from him. So that, that was the best thing that happened in that period uh, until other things kind of started to happen, like pre-punk. I was with a pre-punk band for a while called Gyro, where we were playing a lot of New Orleans, Meters, Dr. John, stuff like that, which which kind of I found 
very satisfying. Yeah. Um, and what was it like? Then, then, then was fuck. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, and and that kind of during that period, this is where I started sneaking into my brother's bedroom, where he had his kind of record collection and and sort of forbid me, forbid me to play anything by in his little kind of area, which was he was into the prog rock world of Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barkley James Harvest and the solo work of Rick Wakeman, and um, so I started, you know, as as a kind of curious. Nobody's perfect. No one's perfect, but but yeah, yeah. what one started hearing the work of Rick Wakeman and the six the six wives of Henry the Eighth and and uh, yes, the journey to the center of the earth and and uh, King Arthur and and all these other elaborate tracks which are much more in the classical world than the jazz world. But did did those keyboards and that sound at all appeal to you? Did you did you have a curiosity of Rick or Tony Banks from Genesis? No. <laughs> it didn't it didn't make you think oh these guys or, or, even, liked, the, or even the equipment did the equipment excite you i liked the the first the first yes album and that, that was the closest i got to it and i could i could i could appreciate to an extent the tech the tech the actual technique of uh keith emerson and rick Waitman. But I found the music did not appeal at all. Um, having said that, I did see Genesis uh, in Bilbao one one time, uh, and I was yeah, it was a good show, uh, and there was a lot of good musicianship within the band. But no, the music stuff didn't appeal, appeal to me. By that point, I got heavily into uh, electric Miles Davis and Weather Report. And bands like that, yes, uh, uh, and you know their musicianship was on a you know a stratospheric level compared to the progressive bands in the UK. Yes, and did so you? If we're talking about music musicianship. Yeah, I was going to say, was it more Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, or kind of blue? Both. Uh, yeah, it was a progression, you know, because when we we're talking earlier, uh, those you know late. Posts. What one was? One was kind of blue, mid sixties. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just the, there was a gradual progression, which took you know three to four years, where where Miles Davis was con well as we know always constantly changed, but there, there was that easing into more because of Hendrix's influence and Sly and the Thunderstone, e easing into things like initially Bitches Brew and going going on from there. Yes, uh, uh, and then Weather Report appeared, uh, both of which I saw Mars Davis a couple of times. Weather Report, probably five or six times. Yes. Um, so, yeah, complex. There's a lot of complex stuff going on in jazz and and you know the progressive scene on 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 the rock progressive scene, which I, I guess you know wasn't unconnected in certain ways. Yes. And how did you get on with people like getting getting into your funk phase, you know, with with sort of Jimmy Ruffin and funk and soul? Was that quite an easy transition or did you have to sort of work on it quite a bit? No, because it was a natural progression from blues and R&B. Because uh, obviously funk has a huge amount of R&B gospel influences in it. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's just... It's it, it's just an expansion or another branch of you know the same black uh, gospel soul funk 
R and B. It's all very connected. But when so you, it was easy. That yeah. was easy. But when 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 sort of you started hearing the first bits of punk coming through, I suppose there was people like Doctors of Doctors of Madness and and then um Doctor Feelgood. There's a lot of doctors, weren't there, in that period? Uh, <laughs> did uh, did that kind of interest you, you know, in Brimsley Swartz and people like that? Was that something what loosely known as pub rock? Pub rock, indeed, yes. Yeah, that was the kind of the early period, wasn't that? Was the kind of the the like the taster before punk started to really develop a bit more, you know? Yeah. I just wondered if if you were interested in that at all, or whether that was just a bit too basic. Not particularly. Uh, I thought Doctor. I heard a couple of Doctor Phil good tracks. I thought were very gritty. I, I like that. Uh, the sixties R and B uh, thing. Uh, trying to think who else I, I I saw prior to punk. Was was um, was the mod kind of thing kind of on your radar? Bands like the Action and people like that. Oh God, they were contemporaries of the same the uni. We're playing the same clubs all over the UK as they were. Right. Yes. God, we love the Action, don't we? Um, yeah. They they yeah. they were good. They were a good band. I know Paul Weller, Phil Collins. They all loved them, didn't they? <laughs> yes. Yeah, which is an interesting mix so so then did you being in manchester did you pick up that period of kind of um you know the early punk gigs you know did you go and see the sex pistols i didn't know i um you know i'm not going to pretend i was at that famous gig uh i wasn't um i, I actually found the music pretty awful um with a few exceptions, you know, God Save the Queen, I really like. Um, but I was more taken with with the, the massive change, the reaction that it was against the music that had gone before, and obviously, you know, the government at the time. I, I found that great. I, I, you know, just the political aspect of it and the way it was affecting people a lot younger than myself. I was effectively way too old to actually be, you know, taking it as it was meant to be taken but i was fascinated by the reaction of of young people to it and i used to, i've always been very interested in photography so i used to go to various uh, venues and, and take photographs of the crowd and and the band always picture the band through the crowd um so yeah that that was that, that's how it affected me um and then I didn't know much about it. I'd, you know, I knew about Warsaw because uh, I was a good friend of Martin Hannett yes. uh, prior to punk happening, um, and he. Uh, I was round at his house one night, and he played me two tapes. He said, "I'm going to play these two things that I've, I've, you know, recorded and produced. Tell me which one you like of the two. Which do you prefer?" So he played, I didn't know who he was, he played these two tapes, and I said, oh, that one, whichever one it was. And he went, oh, okay, well, they're called the Buzzcocks. So I said, well, who was the other one? He said, that was Slaughter and the Dogs. Uh, I said, well, I really like the Buzzcocks. Um, and it was Martin that gave me a ring, uh, telephone one night, no, one evening, early evening, he said, watch So It Goes on Granada tonight at 10.30. There's a band on that I think you really might like, and they're looking for for a keyboard player, right? Uh, and that was magazine. 
Yeah, and that was magazine. And did you did you uh, share a flat? A... Did you share a flat with Martin at that stage? Martin, yes, yes. yes. Um, the after after he'd give me the the tip about magazine, uh, and I'd uh, been to see Howard. Yeah, we we moved we moved in my my uh, girlfriend then who's now my wife. Uh, we we moved into Bisbury into the flat that he had. It was too big for him and his partner, so we we shared that. Uh, God, shared living what was because shared living in the student period that I had was quite grim you know and it was the kitchen was discussed and the bathroom wasn't much better what was it like <laughs> having two couples in one flat it kind of worked because uh I was away a lot of the time we, right. weren't, we weren't there all the time we spent a lot of time we're starting to spend a lot of time on late sessions in the studio um so we, we probably only actually saw each other two or three times a week for not particularly long periods. Right. Uh, and he only ever ate cheese on toast. He only ever ate cheese on toast, so the kitchen didn't get too bad. <laughs> at least he specialised in one thing. And he's probably quite good at it. Wasn't he? Did he put Branston pickle on it at all, or was it just cheese on toast? He did. <laughs> Splash no, the budget. He, he, I think he liked a bit of Branston. Oh, <laughs> Classy yes. man. <laughs> so when you got to audition for... But he had a really good hi-fi. Did he? Was it Pioneer? Was it a Pioneer hi-fi? No, he had this He had this quad system uh, with the quad electrostatic speakers uh, with, you know, a really nice, just a really nice setup. Then he said, I'm just not getting enough bass on these speakers. So he got another set of electrostatics and, and got this special metal frame so he could have two two of these quad speakers either side and and still didn't get much bass for once because they didn't never did give you much bass because of electrostatic speakers and as a bass player that was anathema to him of course um but but yeah it sounded great anyway sorry go on and I was going to say, when you went to, did you have an audition for magazine, or did you did you just literally get sort of given the gig? Did you have to sort of go and parade your wares and and skill? It was a it was a staged process. Uh, first of all, I I had a meeting with Howard, just the two of us, in a pub, uh, to for two two and a half hours, just chatting. I suppose that was an initial. Quite right, I suppose you you know. Uh, he wanted to see if I was an idiot or not, I suppose. Never mind. Well, that, you know, it doesn't matter if you can play. If you can't live and work with someone, you know, the intensity that comes with being in the band. Yes. Well, why have them in the band? Uh, so we seemed to get on okay. Uh, so we arranged uh, a week of rehearsals uh, to try things out. And I think after a couple of days, uh, Howard said, look, it's, no, it's good. Everyone, everyone likes you. Blah blah blah. Uh, we've got some dates coming up. Uh, how about you play these dates with us, and if that works out, you join the band. Um, and that, that's so it's like a two, excuse me, two to three stage process. Yes. Well, there you go. So when when you because at that stage was Barry Adamson and John McGeehock were both you know you you sort of met them for the first time as well. 
Yeah, when I went down to the rehearsal, they had a they had a, 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 a rehearsal room in Cholton, Cholton Kamhadi, that that was theirs to use whenever they wanted, uh, in the basement of this uh, big semi-detached house, uh, and that's where we rehearsed every day, from you know eleven in the morning until five at night, nice. with with a you know, forty-five minutes for lunch, and then back to rehearsals again. Good, in the good work, work ethic, because. Uh, because Barry in his book refers to you as was it um, keyboard city? Did you did you intimidate the band with your equipment and proficiency? Well, well, I won't say. I hope it wasn't intimidation. Uh, what, what did I have? I had a Hammond organ, a Fender Rhodes uh, piano, and an ARP Odyssey synthesizer. So. Um, once I was established in the band, I got more. So um, maybe it was a, a you know a, a gradual build-up. Um, no, I suppose in in a sense, you know, the, you could count count on fingers of one hand how many of the 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 the, the punk or post-punk immediate post-punk bands had a keyboard player. It was unusual. It, it wasn't a dumb thing. No, it wasn't the done thing. No, I know, because I, I think a lot of people sort of struggled. I mean, the Stranglers got away with it a bit, didn't they, for various reasons. But, yeah. but um, I know, and people like John Peel could be quite sniffy about people with key, bands with keyboards, couldn't he, as well, I do believe. Well, I think Paul Morley uh, hinted that, uh, you know, what was I doing in magazine you know, as a keyboard player? Um but yeah, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, he's just a journalist. Now, with the song, I, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm still here. I thought I'd lost you, David. No, no, I'm still on. Yeah, it's gone a bit slow. It has gone a bit slow, a bit static. But I can hear. We've, we've come back. Got... Come back. <laughs> I'm here, and actually, it's still recording. But um, yeah, so with with certain songs, the 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 light pours out of me. Can you remember much of recording that session? That song. Yeah, yeah, I can remember recording all the first album. And did it did it feel like quite a magical moment? I just, I asked that because I've I've done interviews with people like Chris Spedin, who's been on so many bad records, amazing sure. records. And I said, you know, when you recorded that one with Harry Nilsson, did you think, wow, this is incredible? And he said, no, not at all. You just record it, think, oh, that's probably all right. And the songs that you think are going to be amazing completely disappear, and the ones that you think are you shrug your shoulders, turn out to be these massive hits. Did you did you ever sort of have that feeling with magazine on that first album, or did you think, no, this is no, not at all. No, I mean, Chris Spedding saying that is, is something that I think a lot of session he was effectively a session player, really. I mean, that's that's what he was rather than yes, he was in bands, but I think he was more of a session player. Uh, for me, it was it was, I was incredibly excited joining magazine because I'd had this massive gap of awful, mainly awful music I was playing. And then suddenly to be in a band that really, see, you know, had a, an, an internal excitement and, and a real chemistry happening with it, within the members of the band was, was really exciting. You know, thank you, lucky stars. You know, here I am in a band that looks like it's going somewhere. Uh, and and I was, you know, what was great about the rest of the guys in the band that, you know, despite Barry saying, you know, keyboard city, uh, 
they were they were really open to ideas and things that I was bringing to it. So uh, yeah, it was it was very exciting. As exciting as you know, starting with the Saint Louis Union, really in its own way. Yes, and had you listened? Uh, had you at that stage had you heard Aladdin Sane with um, Mike Garson and his kind of in, in the way he brought in keyboards on that that album? Not 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 a, a lot. I knew he was a great player from the records I'd heard, and uh, when I started to hear live uh, albums being released that were live shows with him on keyboards, I thought he's a great player. Yeah, I admired his playing. Yes, because the last ooh, the last track on the album is one that you co-wrote um, with Barry, yeah. Parade. So how did you two work together at that stage? Uh, well, w- generally, as I said before, pretty well. But I, I wrote the, the main body of uh, Parade uh, at Martin when I was sharing the flat with Martin. We had a, it was a three-bedroom flat. And what, there was a spare bedroom that was like a music room where I had, uh, which I would bring at weekends, I'd bring my Odyssey, the synth home, and, and set it up with, with the other keyboards that Martin had in, in, in the music room. And I came up with all of the, <clears throat> the, the melodies and chords for Parade in there, took it to the next rehearsal with magazine and said, what do you think of this? And Barry said, oh, I've got an introduction. I've got a, pe- a, a little piece that might just fit on the front of that as an introduction. So the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that's Barry's, and then all the rest is mine. Right. Uh, so it was done kind of uh, separate, and then coming down to the rehearsal, you know, he went, oh, that could work as an introduction, and it really did. Yes, there you go. And was the um and did the the kind of creative energy of the band? Did you all feel quite supported at that stage? Supported by each other? Did you feel like? Oh, yeah, you're... yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Yes, um, I was. Well, I I was very impressed with 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 Barry and McGeoch's ability and feel uh, for for the music and and the speed that they could pick things up and develop them. Um, and Howard, you know, Howard was a leader. Uh, so it was, it was obvious uh, what he was able to do with the quality of his lyrics uh, and the amount of in, influence and input he'd had in the songs that were written before I joined. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You know, overall, I, I was very impressed with, with, with the ability of the band, I mean, you know, I, they were all younger than me. You know, I, I was 12 years older than Barry, which, going back to what you said before, that's a big age difference for, for Barry. You know, I, I was, you know, nearly 30. You know, I must have seemed like a, you know, a bloke to him, and he was, you know, he was still a teenager, for God's sake. You know? Yes, I know. Did, um, did, did you ever get questioned your punk authenticity at that stage? Because people are quite fickle at at youth and especially during that tribal period did did you ever feel a little bit like just watch it sunny i'll punch you <laughs> if anyone had said if anyone had questioned it yeah i would have done but no no one ever did uh luckily i always looked a lot younger than than i actually was so uh, i go. got i got away with it you got away with it and how come martin didn't produce the album but you had john leckie instead didn't you 
Yes. Was that because, uh, was that the record label's decision? Well, they offered him. It was it was their suggestion. Yes. Um, right. I, I think I think uh, Howard at that point, uh, although he was very happy with Spiral Scratch, I think. Uh, I don't. I th I don't know. I'm kind of half guessing here, David. But I, I think he 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 worried slightly what it would be like to work with Martin, uh, for the period involved on making an album. But I might be completely wrong there. But no, I think he did, Martin did come up as as a fleeting suggestion for real life, but it wasn't it wasn't universally agreed that that we would. Uh, and then I think Virgin offered John Leckie maybe. I'm trying to remember if Steve Hillage might have been in the frame as well. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think we all pretty much got on with John, like we had a meeting with him and, you know, find, it, find him a nice enough guy and uh, hurried on with that. Yes, they Just went along with it. And, and, when, and it worked very well, obviously. And what was it like then? Sort Sorry, of, I, I can't hear you. I said no. And then after, oh. you know, you had the... that the, 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 David, I've lost uh, you. Oh my God! Don't lose me. That's not good, is yeah, it? Yeah, we're back to no, no. Uh, I can see you speaking, but hold on the, a second. Yes, the Wi-Fi. Hello? I'm here. Ah, yeah. How weird. The volume. A message came up uh, and said, "Do you want to disconnect?" And the volume went right down. So anyway, oh, that's tricky. Sometimes it we're sometimes back. it mentions being unstable, but that's just been a bit personal. No. The, the tricky second album, you know, you you sort of don't have much time between, you know, the promoting the first one and the second one. What was it? What was that like? Had it changed much? The dynamics and the writing and um, inspiration. It was very intense because we were, if we weren't in the studio, we were touring. Um, there wasn't there wasn't a terrible lot of time. I mean, we I think we we had a couple of weeks. Uh, well, we had deliberately took some time to write material for the next album, and we went back into the the rehearsal studio that we had in Charlton, and that's where we we put together the majority of the songs for for Second Hand Daylight. Yes, um, I I felt uh, you know I was established in the band by then, uh, and and I was able to bring a lot more ideas forward. Uh, because you know we were starting from scratch with, with new material, obviously all together. Um, yes. So, and had the sorry, dynamic and had the dynamic changed much with with the sort of as as people took different roles and Howard sort of being the front man and having to sort of lead the band in in so many ways. I suppose inevitably, you know, doing all those things and a lot of touring. Uh, and you get to know each other a better. Better, yes, it, it would have changed to an extent, but I, I didn't feel that music. The music dynamic was particularly different. Um, you know, in retrospect, there's been various uh, stories related that that John felt that uh, he was getting less space for his guitar parts because I was coming up with lots of synth keyboard-based songs, uh, and I think uh, the Thin Air, which which he wrote, uh, with, was it with Barry or, or Howard? I think it was with Barry. That 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 was his 
funnily enough, it's all keyboards nearly. Uh, <laughs> he, he came up with that as a, as a reaction, perhaps, to to what I was offering. Yes, but it was it was never. We were good friends. John and I were particularly good friends for the period that he was in magazine. Yes. Um, so no, not not you know it wasn't on on the edge of anything. I, 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 it was a development, I would say. Yeah, and what was it? Because obviously touring is quite a big thing, isn't it? And in the UK, that's you know like going around this this little country is one thing. But what was your American experience like going in such a big state? Because because a lot of bands I spoke to, they often mentioned the the grueling experience of America. And often come come back from an American tour and just want to break. You know, they often break up at that point because they just can't cope. What was it like for you touring America at this stage? Pretty much the opposite. Uh, that that first that first tour was was a. I think Howard don't even he perhaps quite didn't quite enjoy it as much as us because he had a his father was died. During the course, what was it during that or just after? But he, he was either, he, he, his dad either died or was very ill uh, during the, that tour, so that would have been awful for him. Uh, but I think for the rest of us, it was a massive adventure. Yes, uh, yes, it was. It was tiring because we were often getting to bed at two and having to get up at half four or five and do a seven hundred mile journey to the next to the next gig. So yeah, physically, but. It, it was balanced by it being really exciting and and sort of being feeling like you were bringing some you know you were taking something new to America, uh, and the reaction generally was very very good uh, to you know to our gigs. So it was very exciting. Yes, my God, and I, I I certainly for me I I I never thought this is going to break the band. Um, the the I think there was a reaction to uh, the critical reaction, or there was a van reaction, naturally, to the critical reaction because it was so, generally so much different to the reaction we'd got for real life. Uh, I think that took some thinking about. Yes. Um, when we're being accused of being, you know, the new wave Pink Floyd and things, snidey things like that. Um, so... Uh, yeah, progressive rock came back, back and bit us. Uh, <laughs> according to, not according to us, according to various reviews. Yes, uh, well, it's kind of it was kind of an interesting period because we had that in a simplistic way, you know, punk and then the post-punk period. And I guess you're more in that that latter camp, aren't you, with the the sort of slightly more interesting musical kind of sonic soundscapes than a straightforward punk band from 1976. Oh yeah, yeah, a long way away. Yeah. Yes. But then as we as we truck up to sort of 79, Thatcher gets in, we have the Thatcher government for 10 years, there's the, the Falkland War, there's the miners' crisis and strikes, there's Greenham Common, we think we're going to be nuked in our beds, and, and sort of, you know, it, it's all sort of feeling quite grim in the country at this stage with massive amounts of unemployment, especially for young people. So what? So is this kind of around the time that the, the, the band break up and then you become part of Visage? No, no. Visage actually started to uh, happen on a recording level in '79. Right. Uh, so we'd gone to America uh, to 
saw effectively secondhand daylight, um, and we'd started to write correct use of soap by then. Uh, so we were, you know, did we actually? Yeah, we included uh, some of uh, some of the songs we were writing for uh, correct use of soap in that first American tour uh, because we recorded. Uh, I don't remember the name of the film. Oh, Jesus Christ, uh, my memory. Um, yeah, we, we we appeared in a, a, a live a live film, the movie. What was it called? It's a famous kind of new wave film. Uh, it'll come to me. I'll take yes. you. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So we did we did a, a couple of crazy uh, uh, soap songs on that. So yeah, what I'm saying, what I'm in a long winded way trying to say is that. You know, we, we had those songs on that first American tour and we'd started, to, I think we'd recorded one song for Visage by then. But because of our schedules, the touring recording um, and uh, the guys who were in Ultravox, uh, it, it just sat on the shelf for another 18 months, the Visage thing. Right. There you go. So was it? So it was Ultravox, the connection. But when did you meet Rusty Egan? When did he come into your life? Well, Barry and I uh, used to live very close to Covent Garden when we first moved down to London. Right. Uh, and we found I don't know how we found out about the Blitz in its early days. And that's just going down to the Blitz. We bumped into Rusty, which was inevitable. Uh, and he said he loved what we're doing. He loved. Parade, he used to play Parade at the Blitz, um, and the light pours out of me <clears throat> and said, oh, you know, I've got this thing happening with some other guys, uh, Billy Curry out of Ultrox, and, and Major, uh, would you be interested? And he, and he kind of recruited us via Barry and I going down to the, to the Blitz. So he basically just bansy light from what he'd heard from records you know, suddenly walked into the Blitz and he started recruiting us. Right. But, but due, to our, due to our commitments to our own bands, it, it, it was a bit of a, a, long, a long period to get, get it together for us to be around at the same time. And, and what did, um, so you, Barry, and was John part of Visage as well at one stage? He, he was, yeah. Uh, because, we, because we obviously explained to John what had happened and he, he then started to, to come down to the Blitz with us. I think it was on a Tuesday night. Yes. Uh, and how did Howard feel having his band sort of, you know, seeing someone on the side? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we said it's only kissing at this stage, Howard. Yes, so it's only, it's only, no tongues. Yeah. <laughs> so did uh, did that cause, because, you know, I read Morrissey's book because I was a massive Smith fan. He wasn't happy when Johnny started flirting or talking to other musicians like Brian Ferry or Chrissy Hines. Yeah. How did that, how did that sort of, you know, did, did well, you? Well, he, he didn't say, uh, he never confronted me uh, or, or as far as I know, the other two. He kept, he kept pretty cool and pragmatic about it really. Although I kind of heard, well, I had conversations with Howard since and I don't think he was that happy. Uh, yes. Naturally. Well, you wouldn't be. I totally understand that. If 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 you felt like that, I yes. think I would feel I'd feel the same. Uh, and to an extent, when John started to work with Susie uh, on the side, I, you know, I think 
probably not just me thought, oh yeah, what's happening here? <laughs> I think the same thing happened in Liverpool with a couple of bands like the Wild Swans and the is it Locust Lotus Eater Locust Eater? Oh yeah. Yes, I think I think most of those bands who worked with Paul in the Wild Swans went and then worked with another band and had that massive hit, First Pictures of You, First Pictures of Summer, which didn't help any, didn't help Paul and the Wild Swans at all. Sure. Sort of tra- traumatized him, it did. So when Visage, I mean, it was kind of for me, they were such an electronic band. Did you did you enjoy the the album and and sort of making that material? They, you know, I was a bit rock based really so so Vizard yeah. was one of those bands did you did you embrace the sort of the whole sound and scene of the Blitz Kids and Visage and Steve Strange not as much as uh, Steve and Rusty and the, the regulars down there but the the process of making the record and the challenges that that uh, put forward uh, because there wasn't a lot going as far as sequences were concerned uh, so just getting all the all the keyboards speaking to each other was was quite difficult at that point because it was before MIDI had properly come out. Uh, so it, it you know just physically was a challenge to get to get them all working together, which we did eventually. We had this guy, uh, a friend of Billy's, who who was put made this custom made sequencer to get all the things working together and get them sequencing with the Roland drum machines and things like that. So that was really interesting. Uh, and by this time, you know, I, I, I was getting more and more interested in synthesizers. Um, I, I got a profit fired by them with magazine, a polyphonic, because uh, it had all been monophonic synths up to that point. Uh, so I, I, I used uh, the profit with magazine and then I used the profit a lot with with Visage along along with the Odysseys. Strangely yes. enough, Billy Curry, Billy Curry also played in the RP Odyssey. So it was, uh, yeah, My it was God, a cohesion of. I was going to say it was a cohesion of synth sounds, if you like, because we were both using the same same synthesizer with slightly different ways of approaching it. Yes, absolutely. And were you amazed with the impact those? Especially that debut album had on on the sort of the eighties soundtrack, really, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where a, a side project that you found interesting and at times challenging, but far away from being your your main love, uh, as is as was magazine. Suddenly, you find that you you know you've got number one albums all over Europe, uh, and Something he never expected to happen happened with the other band. Uh... <laughs> Did you? I mean, because I, I I haven't sort of been able to follow it because it all seems a bit too too complicated and life too short. But Rusty's always having issues to do with Visage now, isn't he? Is that just a complicated yeah. music business thing that just happens in life, and you just have to shrug your shoulders? Well, yeah, shrug your shoulders. The fact that half the royalties uh, that we should have got never arrived. Right. Um, so there was. It is like you say, life's too short. Uh, it's it's complicated, but lots of royalties went to Steve that should have come to. No fault of Steve's. Uh, in fact, he what he got this huge amount of money went into his bank account, and he rang me. I can remember exactly where I was walking down the street when he rang me, and said, "Dave, great news! 
He said, I've just had a huge amount of money come into my bank account. And you and the rest of you and the rest of the guys will obviously get the same. It's a, a massive payout from Polydor. Um, and what it was, uh, he, he got all the royalties that were, had accrued and he got them all. And, and of course, we didn't get them. We didn't, didn't it should have been split three other ways. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and then he spent them all because, you know, whether he knew by then that they, that they weren't all his or not. I'd, I'd, I'd like to think he didn't know that. Um, but yeah, that, that's one of the big things for Rusty. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yes, he's, um, yes, he didn't. Poor old boy. Yes, it's life, isn't it, really? Um, yeah, there is. The, honest to God, the amount of lawyers that have been in touch saying, I can get this money for you. I can do this. There's all this money at Polydor on top of that that you've never had. Uh, and I said, great. Off you go. Let me know, and I'll pay you whatever your percentage is. You know, but just let me know when you got it. No. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you have to be a little bit. Uh, uh, yes, I, I, I. You could imagine there's a lot of bands who are still wanting to sort out that business with with your the second album for Visage was was that kind of because you had such a massive hit on that first one was that an was that an tricky process or was it quite an easy process to try and follow up something you know i just always remember that recording of the engineer with the trogs going sprinkle some fairy dust dust on on it you know and give us another hit and everyone you know just getting more and more frustrated because they realized they weren't going to get another hit i just wonder what it was like for a, a band who had such a high profile around uh, the world sure i i i think it's inevitable that, that any band that has that impact Initially, it, you know, there's a certain amount of trepidation when you try and go back in and do it again, I suppose. Um, it had changed, though, by then, because Barry wasn't involved anymore and, and John was, but on a lesser ex to a lesser extent. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it was, it was a more protracted, I think. It was done very quickly, the first album. Um, and I think it was slightly more protracted, the second album. Yes, but I, I think I think I thought I think certainly Midge and the others thought, yeah, this is this is you know up to up to standard of the other stuff. Why, why not? You know? Yes, yeah, there you go. So I don't think we were going. Oh, this is never going to be as good. I just I just thought that you know there was there was a definite optimism with it. Yeah, about what was it, it. Like, what was the difference between because you know you've obviously played with like there's Howard and Steve Strange. You know, you must. You know, what was it like with having such kind of iconic frontmen at this stage? Did you think, God, I do attract some interesting characters? <laughs> honestly, guys, they, they couldn't have been more different. Uh, I know, very different. You know, a lot of people would say, "Oh, lead singers, they, they've all got the same, you know, problems, affectations." Or, but my God, so so different. I can't begin to tell you. Um, <laughs> I mean, Howard didn't need any guiding with what he had to do. He knew exactly what he wanted to do when he walked into the booth to record a vocal. Um, Steve was happy to accept a lot of guidance. Right. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, that's really interesting. And then you you record with a, a French model, don't you, Ronnie? You do a single yes. with her, a Sly Stone song, which is 
which is good. How did you manage to get that gig? Were you were you just on the same label management? No, that was Rusty instigated. Uh, Rusty went, I want I want you and uh, Barry. We're doing the Sly Stone. You're the ideal people. You know, you can do all that stuff. Uh, you know, he didn't. I don't think he even said who he was. He just said, "Get down the studio at this time." You know, I'll pay you. Uh, so Barry and I just went, "Yeah, okay." So we walked into the studio and said, "Right, what are we doing?" Uh, and uh, that was it. Oh yeah, that, I love that song. Yeah, no, so, it, it sounds good. What happened to Ronnie? Because I couldn't find anything about her apart from this brief moment. Is she still alive? I think, as far as I know, I, I think she did. Uh, I think she did do something else recording-wise in France. Don't ask me what it was though. But not that long ago, I, I read this, this little bit saying she she carried on recording and modelling, uh, but then then it stopped and that was the end. I didn't follow it up from there. But yes, yeah, I don't I, I don't think she had an extensive recording career. No, it it didn't look like it. Yeah, it just it was just kind of these these kind of odd curiosities, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So with with being you know Manchester based, then suddenly sort of eighty three, the Smiths appear. You know, the face of music changes completely. But you're in London at that stage. Did you were you then looking for another? I'm not saying you're going to go into the Smiths, but did you sort of think, oh, there's another sound coming out of of the pop charts or the indie charts, the indie pop sound of the '80s? Did that did that excite you? Because Manchester at this stage starts to become a hotbed of excitement. Not not in the same way, uh, because by this time, you know, uh, some money had started to come in from Vizard. Um, and despite despite me missing out on a lot of royalties, I, I I did get enough from it to to do certain things. One of the things I always wanted to do was from very early days was was spend as much possible time in a recording studio because I love I love being in the studio. I love the I love the process. Um, so when when the money started to come in, I, I planned to open a recording studio. Uh, but I think before that, I, I joined uh, Ludus for a while, which is yes. Linda Sterling's band, which we, I remember being in a rehearsal room in Manchester, rehearsing to do dates with, with Ludus, and, and the Smiths were in, in the same studio at the time, just prior to, to them really breaking out, because uh, Linda, Linda obviously knew uh, Morrissey quite well. Yes. Um, so she, she just... Kind of just told me who they were, um, so I, I I didn't spend a huge amount of time with Ludus about a year something like that, um, and then I started to plan uh, how to build a recording studio, which I ended up doing in Shoreditch, when Shoreditch was still a, a desert of empty uh, factories and properties, um, and then suddenly after we'd opened Strong Room, which was the recording studio I built with another guy. Uh, put most of my bizarre royalties into building it. Um, sure, it suddenly started to take off. Blimey, uh, it's all about timing. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what uh, was Lin? What was Linda Sterling like to work with? Right, I mean, I've known her since uh, my early magazine days. Oh, because uh, she was was she with Howard? Yeah, and she was designing and you know sorting his his stage gear out. 
designed, you know, the graph, did the graphics for the first album for real life. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I knew Linda from really early days. Um, in fact, I think Howard consulted her to think to ask her, do you think he's okay for the band? Me <laughs> in the early days. And, she, and I think she'd, yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. So thanks, Linda. Thank you. Yes, there you go. We all need a good break. Did um, do you did you ever record any material with the band or just tour with them? Oh, uh, did a John Peel session with them, right? Uh, and we did, yeah, I, I did record. Uh, I think about five or six tracks uh, in the studio in Manchester around the same time. Right? Did they ever get released on? Was it? I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if they got released. I mean, I. They might have done. I'm sorry, memory's a bit vague on that. They might have come out quite a bit later. Yes, I, I seem to remember getting an acetate. I think what happened was a single came out. I think that's what happened, and then not sure what happened to the rest of the tracks. Yeah, I think that is it. Capuscule owns them all. Cre- the, yeah, Capuscule. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. The famous James Nice. Yes. Yes. So then with, with the music, do you then sort of start operating more as an engineer, producer, stu- studio owner? and um, the, Exactly. Right. For the 90, the John Major years, were you very much running the business? Well, it was another guy from Liverpool called Richard Boot and I, that I, I was kind of looking after the musical side and he was more the businessman. Um I wasn't engineering at that point. I didn't know how to properly. Uh, so we had a team of engineers. Uh, but luckily, we, we had two fairly big sort of hit re- uh, albums recorded at the studio within the first 10 or 11 months. That was the, first, the House Martin's first album and Erasure's first album. Um, John Cale recorded an album there and Nico did. So we, we had some good people coming through this unknown studio quite quite early on, which really put us on the map. Um, yes, God, that must have been exciting seeing the House Martins record their yeah. debut album. Yeah, yes. it was. Um, and uh, I then got involved. Uh, uh, prior to that, I'd done Howard's solo album with him and toured America. So that, that was 83. Uh, and Strong Room opened in late 84. Um, so I, I suppose what I was doing was all the excitement of getting it going, making it successful, um, the odd production job. Uh, and then I started to, to work with Howard again with Luxuria, uh, co-producer, second album in the strong room. Um, and then the, the 90s hit, recession hit, studios all over London were struggling to keep going. Um, there was a lot of competition at that time, so many studios. Um, and my partner, who's much more reckless, strangely enough, than me, uh, wanted us to put our houses online to raise money to open more studios. Uh, by that time, I got a couple of kids, and I said, I don't want to do that. Uh, no. So um, I, what I did was... Uh, sold my half of the business to to rebore me out. Uh, and, and at the same time, I was missing playing. I wasn't doing much, you know, live playing. Uh, so 
and I kind of I felt I was doing more business than the music as such. Um, so it felt right to move out of it at that point, uh, which I did. Yes, so that that was ninety two. Uh, so it, I enjoyed it from eighty five to ninety two, running a big studio in London. Yes, so, uh, and then. So then you you do a solo you get your solo album Satellite Sweetheart. Do you? I mean, the ten years before that, were you just playing in various bands, doing various bits and pieces? Uh, yeah, uh, doing bits and pieces, as you say. Um, and then we moved out of London in '94, uh, and I now live in Lincolnshire, where I am now. Right. Uh, so so what's the first thing I do within the first year of moving here? I build a studio in the garden. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be which, done though it has to be done uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm quite obsessed with recording studios as you might, yes. might have gathered and then i extended it uh five years ago and built a massive live room in it in front of the original studio so now it's a, a very well for, for a studio in the garden it's a big studio Nice. That's nice. So when when it comes to sort of 2005, 2007, is this where you sort of get itchy and think, not literally itchy, but um, think, I want to do a solo album. This is Satellite Sweetheart. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, I, I started uh, sketching some ideas out. Uh, excuse me. And then I asked Howard, I rang Howard and said, look, I'm doing this album. Will you sing on one of the songs? Uh, and he said, mm, well, send it to me. Uh, just being a bit cagey, naturally, because we've not worked together in a long time. Yes. So I sent it to him and he really liked it. So uh, he said yes. And then I thought, why don't I speak to uh, to Barry? You know, Why don't I speak to John Doyle um, and ask them if they contribute as well? And they both said, yes, fine. Uh, and during that period of making Satellite Sweetheart, uh, Rusty got in touch and said, would I do some remixes of some Visage tracks? So he sent me the multi tracks, which had by this time tapered, pretty much vanished and everything was, you know, via computers. So he sent me the audio <clears throat> and I was listening through to the tracks and on one of the tracks, I can't remember which one, uh, I heard a voice and some talking, and I recognised it, that it was John. Um, and this was kind of in between takes and, and a little bit of guitar playing. And I realised it was John talking. John and I had a sort of semi-silly language that we would lapse into, like a cod Russian thing, just talking nonsense in this vaguely ru Russian way. And he was doing this cod, cod uh, nonsense talk. Um, which obviously we're still doing in, in Visage days. And uh, <laughs> I just grabbed it and the bits of guitar and, and did this track called Antihero, which which features John, which I lifted from that Visage track. Wow, that's the last track on the album, Antihero with yeah. John McGeorg. So, it's, some, it's something like a supergroup here. You've got you know, members of In Spiral Carpet, Swing Out Sister, you know, David McGormont. And um, yeah. even Robert Wyatt appears. So, so and and Dennis Rowlands. Did you? I mean, at this stage, how long did this project last for? Actually, recording it, uh, I suppose, and mixing it was done over a, 
over a period of three years, not all the time, because the magazine reunion kind of happened in the middle of it. Um, and Howard did say in a couple of interviews that it was all my fault, uh, the magazine reunion, because I'd got everyone, the surviving members, to play on my album. Yes. Um, and that had a, a, a sort of way of uh, bringing people together again. Uh, and I got a phone call from a promoter who said, what's the chances of magazine getting back together again in the midst of all this uh, while I was doing the album? And I said, absolutely no chance at all. And he said, oh, really? I said, well, we've been asked many times and we did try uh, in 2004, 2005, and it didn't work out. Excuse me. Uh, and he said, oh, well, go on, because there's some enticing money involved here. Um, so a combination of that and working together on my solo album enabled it to happen. Yes. So with the, with the songs on this one, this is the Know Thyself, were these kind of written as a band or did you individually sort of do your your numbers and then present it to each other it was yeah it was it was a question of someone coming up with an idea uh posting it around to everyone uh sending the audio around and and everyone working on it or not everyone you know we didn't put real drums on until we were all in the studio together uh but yeah guitar uh keyboard and bass parts and vocals uh, were done like that. Yeah. Did you ever sort of feel when Howard presented you with lyrics that you thought, crikey, Howard, I'm not sure about this? I was thinking there was a track on the second track, Other Thematic Material, which is sort of an odd song at the best of times. And um, it's quite crude, isn't it? And and so like, hmm, interesting. How did you, did you write, you didn't write that, did you? I wrote the music, yeah. Yeah, oh, God, thank God. I didn't want to offend your lyric writing. <laughs> so it's just that it's a bit of a, a number, isn't it? It's just like, oh, that's interesting. It, uh, I think it's hard being ironic in a very strange sort of way, really. Right. Um, <laughs> it, because I, th I think, you know, at least one critic questioned the, uh, you know, the dubiousness of it, if you like. Um, it's easy to miss the point sometimes with Howard. Yes, well, I, I guess so. And I guess, the, the, of course, Howard is is another, you know, self-deprecating sort of track, isn't it? I guess. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> did you enjoy? Did you enjoy the the album, or, or you know, was it just um, an interesting experience? No, I, I really enjoyed doing it. Um, the, uh, on the whole, we were—I think I can speak for everyone—we were—we were really very pleased with it. Yes. Um, it wasn't, you know, the fact that Barry wasn't on it was, you know, a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, but you know, uh, John, the guy that played bass on it, is a great player. So there, there was no, there was no question of it not being up to standard playing-wise. It was just. Barry obviously has a way of playing and stuff, very individual style of playing. Yeah. Um, so that was missed. Uh, but yeah, overall, I think it was, you know, I, I'm, I'm really happy with what came out. Yes. And then did you, um, 
I mean, did you tour that album at all? Did you do many live dates on on that with that promise to the promoter? Uh, we we did some dates. Uh, we we kind of left it too long between those incredibly well received dates of 2009 and coming back out again two years later. We should we should have been at you know if 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 things had been slightly different, the album would have come been done quicker and we'd have gone out on the road within 12 months of the previous dates. I think I think some of the impetus was lost. Yes, I guess that was. I mean, because I know, I mean, Barry brought his book out a few years ago and there's an awful lot about his drug taking in it. Did, did, did it, was it just a very difficult time sometimes with Barry with his kind of consumption? Well, it wasn't like that with magazines. Right. It was his, his latter years. Yeah. Right. It's just kind of, you know, it's just quite grim pictures that he paints sometimes, isn't it really? With Sure. Yeah, but it it was you know it was not you know it was alcohol and maybe the odd joint that was it. Yes, in, in magazine days. Yes, and then I mean for all of us, not not you know I'm not pointing that at Barry. I'm just saying that was what was on the on the menu. Nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's just I you know I've read you know, bits of his, the book, and it all just seemed really like, God, this has got messy, hasn't it? Sort of, um, I couldn't remember what part of that that period it was. In a yeah, way. it was definitely after, I think it was uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from from that, pe- in within that period. It's always going to go bad with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> that was good. And then, I mean... Coming up to the current day, are you playing still with with very a French band? Uh, I'm not playing with them. I, they they came in to record an album uh, last April, um, and then came back again to mix it. Uh, and strangely enough, they're coming over next Thursday, right, uh, uh, to play play some dates over here. But I'm not. I, I was I was quite ill for a while, and. Uh, I was originally going to play these dates with them, but I, I wasn't up to it. So uh, they're just doing them without me. And then they're trying to see if I'll, I'll go over to France later in the year and do some dates with them. Um, so, but they good. We, we we became good friends. We all got on very well. Um, I, they played. Did, I don't know if you know the story. The reason they got in touch with me to to record the album was they supported us. In France in 1980 in Lyon, right. Played, played two dates uh, with supporting magazine. So all those years later, got in touch and said, "They all came with them." And then yeah. you did a, you did a much more ambient album, did you? A sort of a duo with this was with Christine Hansen, didn't you? Which Scottish um, Canadian Scottish cello player, yeah. Which is a completely different soundtrack to anything you've ever done before, isn't it? It is, yeah. How, How versatile! That... How versatile am I? And did you did you sort of think, God, <laughs> oh, this this we could we could we could be you know in a um a sort of a new age kind of ambient center here? This is quite a different vibe, isn't it? I just like the idea of combining electronics and keyboards with with a string instrument and did lots of experiments with the cello, the cello uh, you know, really tracking sort of you know. Tens and fifteen tracks of of cello, uh, 
just just to create these these, these ranks of strings mixed in with with synthesizers. I just find it really uh, an experiment. Really, I, I enjoy doing it. No, I didn't think uh, I, I couldn't see myself doing loads loads of albums like that. No, and did it? Um, uh, and did you? Did it get good? press or good good sort of um yeah the people that got to hear it yeah it was a bit with a very very small label and no promotion involved and it kind of slightly withered on the vine really oh. um it's funny every now and then someone's oh, i just heard the organ of courting it's fantastic why haven't i heard this before um and i said well i don't know why you know probably because <laughs> no one no one was re- reviewing it or releasing it properly. So, uh, yes, hey ho. this is true. So, on the other musical bit, so it's kind of studio stuff and and sort of um, building more equipment in your garden. Is there any other musical projects you've got or archiving projects you've got lined up? Uh, I, I've been, uh, I still I haven't played any live gigs since COVID. Um, but I can't, luckily, I, I, you know, I, I've got lots of work. People asking me to add keyboards to tracks and and mix stuff for them. Uh, and I've been experimenting uh, almost. I suppose I've gone back to this jazz thing again. I've been experimenting with uh, with strings and and brass and and keyboards, improvised things over over kind of ambient strings and things. So there you go. I've gone back to the ambient thing a little bit, but but with a more jazz, more jazz flavor tinge to it. So yes. I'm just experimenting at the moment. But some of some of the tracks are really sounding good. So uh, I'll let you, you hear them when, it, yes. when they're done. Are you channeling the spirit of Bill Evans at this point? <laughs> Why do you say that? Well I think he, you know, his his um his work that he did with Miles was just always magical. And I just thought, I wondered if you were, yes, having that kind of, you know. Huge fan of Bill Evans, yeah. And um, yes, I mean, he's, you know, he's always one of those those players that you just think is always enjoyable. And I just wondered if you were ever thinking, yes, what would Bill be doing at this stage? Yeah. Yeah, him and Herbie Hancock are my two, two of my favourite piano players, or keyboard players, yeah. Yes. Well, there you go. Well, look, Dave. Thank you ever so much for this, and we managed to get the the, the technology to work. But I'm look, sorry, it's taking so long prior to this as well. <laughs> That's all right. These things happen. I know. Yeah, you know yeah. As we get older, but I'm so pleased, and thank you ever so much. I mean, it's been fantastic, kind of listening to your back catalogue and hearing all your other bits and pieces that you've done. Actually, okay, it's, it's it goes. It's it's like such an amazing arc from the whole '60s through to that punk, you know, post-punk, you know, and, and beyond. So it's it's fantastic to hear how much you've done. I've been lucky. You've been very lucky. And played with some of the most amazing musicians, really. Yeah. Well, look, thank you. And uh, have a lovely day. And um, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, great. And, Let um, me know when you're going to broadcast it. Yeah, I'll send you a link and that'll be good. Oh, that'll be great. Go okay, on. then. And okay. the reception's being good. Okay, have a lovely day. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know, you've guessed that. Anyway, a massive thank you to David Formula, sometimes known as Dave, to his friends, but I'm not sure, really. Anyway, uh, yes, um, amazing. Um, This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. 
Also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. True story. So, yeah, there's a lot of them. So, uh, yeah, mostly on the 80s indie world. So um, fill your boots. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.